Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In August, when Kansas voters went to the polls, surveys suggested that the state was on the cusp of a major victory for opponents of abortion rights. Instead, abortion rights won in a landslide, kicking off a wave of Democratic enthusiasm that perhaps Republicans had overreached. For decades, abortion rights organizations had done everything they could to convince Democratic leaders that the issue was actually a winner for the party, that the country was genuinely on their side on this question. But the universal response from party leaders was always no. It was a bad issue for Democrats because the antis would get all stirred up and come out and vote, and the pro-side didn't care enough. Pro-choice leaders also told me they got the very real sense that party leaders felt icky talking about abortion. But after Kansas, it went zero to 60, with Democrats everywhere hammering the message relentlessly to the exclusion of talking about inflation or public safety, the other issues that are resonating with voters. Now, for a brief moment, it looked like Democrats at least had a slim chance to hold the House and codify Roe v. Wade. They're instead staring down significant losses in the House, and sources tell me that Republicans are extremely confident they're going to win in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and hopeful they'll win in Nevada and New Hampshire even. If they do, that puts Republicans within striking distance of 60 Senate seats after the 2024 election, particularly if Fed Chair Jerome Powell succeeds in producing a serious recession. But none of that means that abortion rights are unpopular. In Kentucky, the antis have put an abortion ban on the ballot, Amendment 2, and organizers on the ground there believe they have a real shot of defeating it. Jasmine Smith and Robert Connie are co-hosts of My Old Kentucky Podcast, a show about the state's politics. And they're my guests today to talk about the fight over abortion rights in Kentucky. Jasmine, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you for having me. And Robert, thank you for joining. Yeah, of course. Really love being here. So... For people outside of Kentucky, for a national audience, can help us out here and set the set the political scene in Kentucky. So, so Jasmine, um, Andy Bashir, Democrat, and I and I bet all of a sudden a bunch of national listeners are like, wait a minute, what? Uh, a Democrat <laughs> is, mm-hmm. is the governor of Kentucky? How did that happen? Um, so Andy Bashir is governor of Kentucky. How did that happen? And how has he done? And how are people viewing his his tenure so far? Yeah, so Kentucky has a history of electing Democrats. Democrats held the House, the state House in Kentucky, for 100 years. And the House didn't flip Republican until 2016 when Trump was elected. And it flipped from majority Democrat to a Republican supermajority. But actually, the year before that was when we elected a Republican governor, and we elected Matt Bevin. And Bevin was a really unpopular Republican governor. We'd had Republican governors before. We had had Ernie Fletcher, but then we had Steve Bashir. But Matt Bevin was unpopular. He really upset working people like public school teachers. And so... That's right. You had that giant teacher strike. Yeah, we did. And... And so 
The Andy Bashir campaign was super well organized. They had a great ground game. People were really upset about Matt Bevan. He just didn't talk to the people very well. He didn't make people feel heard. And it was really an, an anti-Bevin thing. Um, and, it, and it was still a really close race. Right. And, and he, he was sort of a, I don't want to call him a Trump before Trump, but he, was, he pri- tried to primary Mitch McConnell. He was one of these early you know, Tea Party Republicans who were like, the Republican establishment needs to go down. Yeah, he was like this early liberty Republican and and he won the gubernatorial primary with three more moderate, more like classic Republican candidates. He came out of that primary. They all split and, the vote. Yes, exactly. And so um, Bashir won in a really close race and he had really just become the governor and then COVID hit. And... Everyone was was really impressed with his leadership at first. And then I think um, Republicans became really upset, began calling him like Tyrant Andy and things like that. But even through all of that, I think that Andy Bashir is has remained a popular governor because of the way he has handled not just the pandemic, but other things in Kentucky. We had a disastrous flood in eastern Kentucky recently. Mm-hmm. And then before that, we had tornadoes in western Kentucky. And he has handled those disasters with compassion and effective leadership. And he's remained pretty popular here in what's an increasingly Republican state. Right. You've, and Robert, you, you see polls that show him to be one of the most popular governors and that's despite the kind of COVID politics that that he got that he got wrapped up in. Um, how's how's he looking for reelection? You know, it's it's tough to say. I, I go back and forth all the time as to whether I think people overestimate or underestimate Andy Bashir's chances. Mm-hmm. I, I think Democrats, especially in the state, are, are pretty schizophrenic about thinking we're on the verge of losing everything, which we constantly are, and then like in really good shape to hold the governor's office, which shouldn't happen in a, a state as Republican as Kentucky, which, you know, it's, we stand a pretty good chance to do that also. Um, I, I think, you know, the Republican primary to, to face Andy Bashir has already gotten really hot. Um, there's a chance that they could repeat the mistake that they made in 2015. Well, I mean, they won the governorship, so I don't know if it was a mistake, but by, by nominating like the furthest right uh, proto-Trump type person, they, they have you know, some pretty standard Republicans. And then they have some some very fringy, much more like I, I say, like, maybe more Ron DeSantis than, than Donald Trump. And and there's there, who he faces will pr- probably play a, a huge role in his chances. But but I think, you know, there's no way to, to perceive this as anything worse than a coin flip. And, and I think if anything, Andy Bashir should be slightly favored. But given just the Republican nature of of Kentucky, it's impossible to say he's definitely going to win. So, so yeah, I, right. I think that those are his, his chances. And when you say, you know, getting embroiled in COVID, you know, I think when we think about the politics of COVID, the, the loudest voices were, of course, like the anti-vaxxers and the people that hated um, any of the, the you know, the, the restrictions that were placed on people. But I don't think that that was really the median opinion in, in Kentucky or anywhere else. And one of the things that Andy Bashir is really good at is, is figuring out what people actually want, not what 
a lot of people are yelling for and, and doing that. So I think one of the reasons he is popular is maybe even because of his COVID policies, even though he did have some very, very stringent dis- detractors on, on that issue. And how, how would you define his COVID policies? In, in the beginning, he was he was doing a, a version of the Andrew Cuomo. He was having this these kind of, you know, evening press conferences or whatever you would call them, where the entire state was kind of gathering around and 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 watching him and his approval ratings were shooting up, you know, to into the sky. Uh, and then there was this comparison with with Tennessee, which was taking a much more kind of do what you want kind of attitude or, around COVID. But then he did seem to, as as you were saying, as as people kind of moved on the issue, he didn't stick with the kind of with, with the same lockdown politics that you saw in other blue states. I, I don't know, Jasmine, how would you describe how he approached COVID? I think he really stayed somewhere in the middle. He maintained mask mandates and, and things like that. And, and he wouldn't just let some of the, you know, deniers or, you know, anti-vaccine people, you know, just have a free-for-all, but he also wasn't willing to keep schools completely closed forever or things like that. And so, you know, I think there were people who thought he was a tyrant, and then I think there were people who think that his restrictions didn't go far enough, but I think that probably there were a lot of people who thought he was doing a good job. And so I think that's why he has remained pretty popular throughout mm-hmm. all of this is he hasn't upset a huge majority of people one way or the other, I think. And I, I kind of feel like, and I don't know if you have a take on this or not, that if other Democratic governors in in states like New York and California and Washington State and Oregon, even let's say Virginia, had taken that that more moderate road there, that Democrats might be looked on a lot more favorably nowadays. I wonder if they're what what what's your sense on that? Do, do you mind if I jump in and answer this? Sure, one? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think Andy Bashir is in kind of a unique position among Democratic governors in that he didn't hold the legislature. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a as a Democratic governor, you kind of have like two sides of a coin where you say, "Well, I'll upset you know my base of of you know people who are very concerned about COVID if I relax these restrictions, and I don't really feel like I have the ability ever to placate these people who are really mad about COVID, or at least that's kind of how you feel about it." Andy Bashir was able to say, "Well, I wanted to keep these." protocols in place. But the legislature passed a bunch of bills that I vetoed and they overrode um, that loosen these restrictions. And there's now nothing I can do about it. So your progressive people who are likely to get upset aren't going to get mad at Andy Bashir. Uh, um, they're going to say, he, oh, yeah, he, he tried the best that he could. But the people who wanted these things to go away got them to go away. So he kind of, you know, he's not lucky to face this legislature. But maybe in this one specific instance, it worked out for him politically. And so to the question of, of abortion and, and, amend, and Amendment 2 and abortion rights. So what is, what is the current law on abortion, Jasmine, in, in Kentucky? So right now, so in 2019, the legislature passed a trigger law that would ban abortion if Roe versus Wade would be overturned. And it would take effect when Roe is overturned, and it only has one exception if it would prevent the death or substantial risk of death 
or prevent the serious or permanent impairment of a life-sustaining organ of the pregnant woman. So um, that's the only exception. There's no exception for rape or incest or anything like that. And so that trigger law went into effect after the Dobbs decision. The ACLU sued and we had a challenge to that lawsuit and there was a temporary restraining order that was granted in circuit court. And so you were still able to get an abortion in Kentucky um, for a period of time while that temporary restraining order was in place. But the appellate courts here then gave the Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron relief from that temporary restraining order. So he's now allowed to enforce the trigger law. And so now, while that case is still pending, you can no longer get an abortion in Kentucky, except for that very limited exception to prevent the substantial risk of death to the pregnant woman. Um, And so now that that case still has not been heard on the merits, that was just this like emergency motion. And so the Supreme Court of Kentucky will hear arguments about whether the attorney general will continue to have relief from the temporary injunction on November 15th. Of course, that's after the amendment will be on the ballot. And so what what was abortion access like before that? Because, you know, across the country, you've seen a lot of trap efforts and others to like shut down clinics and kind of do an end run around Roe. Like, Robert, what, what, how difficult was it for people to get abortion at all? So for a long time in Kentucky, there was one uh, abortion clinic, and it was in Louisville. Um, in the last few years of Roe, I think there was one that opened in Lexington that was a Planned Parenthood. Um, but the one clinic in, in Louisville is quite legendary. It was the EMW clinic. There are lots and lots of national profiles that were written about it. It was an independent clinic that was run by three doctors um, for a long time. You know, They each retired after a while, and there was just one of the doctors that was left, um, I think even still living. Um, at the point when it closed. But um, I mean, it was a very important institution for, for progressives and for people who support abortion access in Kentucky. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was quite difficult to get an abortion in Kentucky, especially if you weren't in the Louisville area. Um, and, and, and like we mentioned earlier, the legislature finally flipped after a very long time of r- supporting Republicans at the federal level. Only in 2017 was their first uh, a, a Republican legislative session that was fully run by Republicans. And Every session after that, there were more and more abortion restrictions mm-hmm. that were put mm-hmm. in place. Now, each of them were overturned under Roe v. Wade, and uh, but they remain on the books because that's that's kind of how how that goes. So every year there was an additional uh, additional you know restriction on abortion. Um, so we have you know a six week ban. I think we have a four week ban. I think we have like everything you can imagine that could possibly put, be put in there. The le- legislature always wanted to have multiple different restrictions on abortion at the top of their docket every single year. So we've passed these things year after year after year. And now with Rogue on, that is that is what happened. And, and, and yes, like I mentioned at the beginning, I think you have to have two amendments or two the, in order to get an amendment on the ballot, it has to pass in two consecutive legislative sessions. So they started this long before Roe was even on the docket of the Supreme Court, this movement to get this abortion amendment on the ballot. And now that that's just another one of this long line of uh, restrictions that the legislature has has put on Kentuckians. And so when the Republican supermajority took over in 2017, that's when they began passing these abortion restrictions. And a lot of those haven't even 
worked their way, you know, through the court. So there there are challenges to some of these abortion restrictions like still going on right now. Like the trigger law and the there was another bill in 2019, the heartbeat bill, which is a six week abortion ban. You know, there there are state court challenges to those laws like that are that are ongoing right now. 
Then I also heard an explanation of the amendment on a radio show and the co-hosts were confused about it. And so I, I don't think that people think it's straightforward. Robert, what are you hearing on that on that question? Because that, that throws everything up in the air. Yeah, it really does. Uh, Jasmine mentioned the long story to get uh, all of this text onto the ballot. So I don't necessarily think it was like a dirty trick or anything like this. I just think it's this kind of like weird quirk of our system that's kind of new that was based on a different Supreme Court ruling that they have to put this full text on there. They used to just be able to give like short explainers and now they can't do that. It's really hard to overstate the kind of rural urban divide in Kentucky and really across the whole country as a whole. But really, you know, Jasmine and I live in, in Louisville, which is the biggest city in Kentucky. And it's and it's also really hard to like overstate how much energy around Amendment 2 is kind of leading the charge in this election. I, there's a mayor's race in Louisville. There's a, an open U.S. Congress race. There's the U.S. Senate race. Um, there's state legislative races up and down the ballot. We have a million judges on the ballot. But the thing I see the most energy around is this Amendment 2 thing. Uh, and most of the energy in this urban enclave in Kentucky is is for vote no. So I do think in this city, at least, there is a lot of information. People are seeing yard mm-hmm. signs. They're seeing advertisements. They're seeing, like, here's why you should vote no. I couldn't tell you um, uh, about how it's working in in the rural portions of the state because I, I will say that like I have a lot of connections with folks in the rural part of the state, but most of them are pretty progressive and they know that they need to vote no on too. I don't know if that's as pervasive in the other parts of the state as as it is uh, in, in Louisville, but it, it is getting a lot of airtime. There's a lot of advertisements that are being run uh, mostly by the vote no folks. There's a big push like Jasmine said, for, for like texting, there's a big field campaign. There's a pretty substantial campaign around the vote no group. So I think that there is a lot of effort to get people informed. Will it matter? I guess we won't know until next week. And there, Protect Kentucky Access has, has raised a lot of money and has outraised the Yes for Life group. And and so that's definitely encouraging. And And I know that Protect Kentucky Access has really made it a point to have a point of contact in all 120 counties. And so I know that they're trying to reach out to people outside of the the two big cities. And I could see it cutting both ways because if you're a if you're somebody who wants to ban abortion, you might say to yourself, well, I'm 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 a no on this. Although the yes on life, if you if you know the campaign is called yes on life, life is so coded. Anyway, I guess we'll figure it out. But it makes it tough for like the national pundits who love to like you know, look at these races and then define and divine how people are feeling in a particular area. If you're like, well, if they didn't even know how they were feeling, it's it's harder to tell. Uh, but uh, R- Robert, you you kind of have a, a personal connection to this to this amendment. Do you do you mind do you mind sharing that? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. So my, my wife and I um, we got married in in 2015. Um, very shortly thereafter, we tried to start having a, a child and. Um, we went through fertility treatments for several years, and um, after a long and expensive, you know, travail, there we're, we're finally able to to get pregnant, and that was in 2019. And um, after uh, 20 weeks of that pregnancy, we went to uh, an anatomy ultrasound, the first one that we were supposed to have, and we were uh, told at that ultrasound, and after some 
additional tests that our child was not compatible with life. And that, you know, if we decided to carry to term, there was a 0% chance that this baby would live anything more than a few hours or at best a few days, uh, very painful existence and, and then die. Um, it was kind of wild, that whole experience. The The high-risk pregnancy doctor that we spoke to was actually providing coverage from Texas. And the first thing that she told us was, I don't know the legal situation in this state, so I don't know what I'm allowed to tell you. And, and my wife said, At, you know, we, we are willing to consider termination. And she said, that's the best option. Um, and, you know, that was the medical advice that we got from every doctor that was willing to be straight with us. Uh, not their fault. I think it's the government's fault. That they that they weren't able to do that, and um, we made that decision and decided to to terminate the pregnancy. Like I mentioned, the EMW Clinic is a pretty much a, a legendary institution in Kentucky. Uh, I'd never actually been inside of it. Uh, that was my opportunity to do that in this entirely horrible experience. It was a, a strange thing to be able to kind of like experience something I never thought I, I would be able to. But, you know, it was it was a very, very difficult and painful experience. We were in the midst of the General Assembly. Uh, they were debating abortion bills at the time that my wife and I were, were um, in the abortion clinic while my wife was, was having the abortion because it was, you know, a, a later term abortion, 20 weeks. It actually took two days to complete. And, um, you know, I was kind of worried that they were going to pass the bill and the Republican governor was going to sign the bill into law, you know, before we were able to complete the abortion. And I didn't know what was what was going to happen. Um, unfortunately, fortunately, you know, we, we came through it unscathed. Roe was still the law of the land at the time. But it, but it was, you know, it, uh, without any question, the, the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, I, I think my wife w would agree with that. Um, we desperately wanted to have a child. We, we do now uh, that the story does have a happy ending. Um, I have a two-year-old daughter at this point. She likes to watch Paw Patrol and, and tell me no. Um, and she's, you know, a joy. Uh, but, but that experience was was so, so difficult. Uh, we have a strong, you know, abortion protest culture here in Louisville. Uh, there's the, just the one clinic. So uh, this was also during Lent. So a lot of Catholics who don't often come to protests were there on that specific day. And, and it was really hard to just walk by people telling us things like, we'll adopt your baby. Don't kill your baby. Mm. Um, you know, when this was a desperately wanted pregnancy, we wanted, we would adopt your baby. You know, that was uh, just a wild, wild experience. And our experience, you know, I've, I, uh, me and my wife, you know, my wife's a, a less public person than me, but but I, I, tr I am not shy about talking about stuff. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have talked about it quite a bit since then. Um, and uh, we, one of the things we've learned is how not rare this type of experience is. It's not the best term for it, but they call what we experienced a therapeutic abortion. I didn't think there was very much therapeutic that was going Going on, but but abortions like that are not uncommon at all. Um, they happen all the time, and, and Amendment Two definitely runs uh, in a way that would make that type of abortion illegal, and that is just a huge, huge problem. It's it's really shameful, uh, and, and something that I I really really hope doesn't happen. I'm so sorry that that happened to you, and the, and the term therapeutic abortion actually does resonate with me in the sense that if this happened. Uh, to you and your wife now, with the law in place as it is now, every day that she left the house after she's showing, she might have well-meaning people asking her 
Uh, is it a boy? Is it a girl? Do you have a name yet? And just every moment being deeper trauma than some people have ever felt in their entire lives. Like to, to have to hear that question and to know that the answer is that it's not going to be either. Yeah. He or she is not going to survive. And then to ask yourself, do I, how do I answer this question? Do I answer this question? Do I smile and nod and move on? Like the amount of trauma that you would have to go through just walking around for that entire pregnancy is is just to me like unbearable to even think about let alone like contemplate like like going through it it is it is and it's something that we certainly talked about and have thought about quite a bit since uh since the Dobbs decision came down about what it would have been like if if that had happened to us and and you know what would happen what what is happening to a lot of women uh, and a lot of other pregnant people in the current state um the flip side of that is of course that that there are a lot of people who who choose to do that and and one of the big things i think in this entire debate is like that's that's a choice that you can make um and nobody's mm-hmm. trying to begrudge anybody that we just want to retain the option to to not do it if we we don't have to right if that if that's the choice that a woman feels and a, fr- a family feels that they want to make for for themselves and that's that and that's the kind of honor that they want to give to that that moment and make it a a long grieving process I agree with you. Like that should be their that should be their decision to make. A Jasmine has Kentucky had cases that have become public of health implications for women who have been caught up in this new legal regime? Not that I know of. So right now, I think we're we're waiting to see what happens with this state law challenge to our trigger law and our heartbeat bill. But I I haven't heard of about any situation. I know. We've heard about a lot of out-of-state stories with, like, young teenagers who have been denied abortions and things like that. But I haven't heard about anything like that here. But it it certainly, with our only exception being this prevent the death or substantial risk of death or serious permanent impairment, that's such murky waters for a doctor to have to determine, you know, like, what constitute substantial you know how how much time do you have to determine that and when does a condition become a substantial risk of death and and so i'm i'm sure that those situations have arisen um, but i'm not aware of any cases that have made their way through the courts or have been in the media or anything like that as of yet but i'm i'm sure that i'm sure that they're coming (laughs) and what's your sense of how the vote is going to look look like now. Anybody who was saying that they could predict the Kansas outcome, there were people who thought can, the Kansas pro-choice activists might win, but the, I didn't hear many saying they were going to win in an, in an utter landslide. Uh, Robert, what's your what's your sense of how close this is going to be? I have to say, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I feel a little bit the same way I feel about this campaign as I do about you know Andy Bashir's chances at being reelected, like. There's a lot of things that are working in our in our favor. Uh, there's a lot more money on our side. Um, there's a lot more organization on our side. There's a lot more effort uh, on our side. But but the, the just the fundamental dynamics of this state being so conservative are is just a huge huge thing that that is going to be very difficult to overcome. Um, you know, it's 
testing an issue versus a candidate or testing an issue against a party is such a different situation. On our show that we just recorded, um, we were talking about the, the general chances of different legislative candidates uh, across the state. And one of the things Jasmine mentioned to me, she's she's from one of these areas that's heavily, heavily Trump area, very, very strong supporters of, of President Trump, but are are very pro-choice. Uh, that is something that that, you know, that community uh, holds fast to. And, you know, uh, th- there are these like seeming contradictions in what people believe on issues and and the candidates that they support. And it's really hard to ascribe a reason why candidates, why, why people support different candidates. I know you and many other people make a, make a living trying to do that. Uh, And, and, you know, lots of people are good and and, and bad at it in different measures. Um, But this is kind of a, an opportunity to really kind of see how tied in people's uh, views on abortion are to the candidates that that they support, and and I do think it will be a lot closer than say like the the presidential election last year was, um, and, and I do think that that's kind of illustrative as to the importance of the abortion issue um, to to people's political calculus uh, really across the state. And I, and I do feel like if uh, the abortion rights world can follow up winning in Kansas by also winning in Kentucky, that that could have some serious national impact on the, on the conversation. And Jasmine, what's your, what's your read on, on how this is looking on, on election day? Man, Robert took everything I was going to say. He even like <laughs> used what I was talking about on our show earlier. So he, he stole. Yeah. yeah so Robert, so this is a, this is a, this is a good corporate meeting then. Yeah. So, Robert <laughs> is usually a little bit more optimistic than me on his predictions, but I, I agree. I think Andy Bashir beat Matt Bevin by about 5,000 votes. Robert can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's about what it was. And I think that's maybe what this could look like. I'm from an increasingly Republican area that votes for Trump. And I know the people that I grew up with, they're not anti-abortion. And, or they, you know, they may be pretty pro-life, but they... They don't agree with banning all abortions in, in every scenario. But then there are also people in, you know, eastern Kentucky who may vote Democrat sometimes and they're pro-labor, but they're also staunchly pro-life who might vote yes for this. And, and so, you know, party politics just don't tell the whole story when it comes to this amendment, I think. And so I do think it's tough to gauge how this is going to go, um, but I do feel pretty good about it. I think it's been the main conversation that voters want to talk about. It's an issue that I think Democrats in suburban areas in the state used to avoid and stay away from, and now they want to talk about it with voters. And so I feel pretty good about it. I think it's going to be really, really, really close. Well, Jasmine and Robert, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Again, the, their podcast is the My Old Kentucky Podcast. Thanks again, and uh, look, looking forward to seeing how this goes next Tuesday. Yeah, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was Jasmine Smith and Robert Connie, and that's our show. Deconstruct is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. 
Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is the Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.